Okay, the title of the sermon this morning is Fate or Chance, Part 3. And um, I'll just tell you right out of the chute that if you remember last week, I had said that I thought we would get to the topics of um, definite redemption and um, irresistible grace this week, but we're not going to until next week, okay? Last week, we, we looked at a couple of scripture passages, if you remember, that are, that are typically used to try and refute the fact that God elects certain people to salvation and passes others over. I pray, literally, I pray that you came away with an understanding of what those passages really mean, having studied them now in context. Um, they're so often taken out of context, if you remember. I also pray that you realize, and I think most of you do, that it's every pastor's calling, it's part of our calling to declare those things, to exhort and to rebuke with all authority anyone who maligns Scripture or maligns sound doctrine and that's basically a quote from Titus 2.15. So we know that's scriptural. Paul said to Titus, and you've heard me say this before, but it bears repeating. Paul also told Timothy that he would be a quote-unquote good minister of Christ, of Jesus Christ, if he pointed these false teachings out to the brethren. And that is 1 Timothy 4.6. And so the opposite of that's got to be true. If Timothy's a good minister of Christ when he supports out, when he, when he points out false teaching, then he's got to be a bad minister of Christ if he doesn't point out false teaching, if he neglects it. And I think that's a problem in the church today, big time, that we don't want to step on toes. We don't want to um, – give any constructive criticism for a celebrity pastor for fear that people might like that celebrity pastor and hold it against us and whatnot. And that's just not our scriptural calling. Our scriptural calling is to call a spade a spade in regard to false teaching. It's something that we need to do, and we need to do it from the pulpit. So I'm not going to spend any more time re- reviewing that this morning. We have too much additional um, ground to cover. If you missed last week's sermon, you can you can uh, pick up on that other stuff on Sermon Audio uh, or on, at AbidingGraceChurch.com is where the sermons are. Okay, moving on. As you know, we've been looking at Romans 8, 28 through 30. This is like the fourth week. I'm beating it to death. But like I said, there's a lot in there. Last week we saw that the words used by Paul here in these verses, along with uh, verses that we read in in Ephesians 1, are referred to as the golden chain of salvation. You remember that? Okay. With that said, we also learned last week that the word foreknew in verse 29 is yet another objection, like those scriptures we went through, 2 Peter 3, 9. You know, everybody's saved. Um, this is just another objection in the line of defense for those people who believe that man has free will 
in salvation or that man's will works in cooperation with God's will, which it doesn't. And we'll prove that before this series is over. Those that espouse that notion say that according to Romans 8.29, God looks down the corridors of time and he sees those who will, by their own free choice, accept him as their savior and as such, God predestines and calls them to salvation. And of course also, according to those same people, God looks down the corridors of time and sees by one's own free choice who will reject him as Savior. And as such, God does not predestine them for salvation, but instead passes them over, leaving them unsaved to wallow in their sins because they freely rejected him. Can't even begin to tell you how many people and pastors, especially in the denomination I was in previously, have, we've talked about this numerous times, and they will fight to the death that God has looked down the corridors of time. It's a pride thing, as we will see. So, the questions that are before us what does the word foreknew mean in Romans 8.29? And does it mean that God predestined us unto salvation because of foreseen saving faith that was decided upon by our own autonomous choice? Certainly, being sovereign and omniscient or all-knowing, God has advanced knowledge of what will happen to good people and evil people alike. We would all agree on that. However, the scriptures teach that God chose us by his grace before the foundation of the world. We didn't choose him. That's what the scriptures teach. And it's by his gracious choice alone that the elect are called and predestined beforehand. Remember Ephesians 1, 11 through 14? I am going to read this again, even though I read it last week and I read it the week before that. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, not our will. His will, not in conjunction with our will, his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him. You also. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of what? Of our inheritance until we require possession of it 
to the praise of his glory. This is all God and it's none of us. Show me us in those verses. There's no us. I had somebody the other day try to convince me that each past tense word that I just read here, it's all past tense, that it was um, something that we were steward of on this earth right now. And we went back and forth for quite some time about who we are position. This person was saying that we're not positionally these things yet. And I was saying we are positionally these things. It says so right here. But anyway, that's for another time. Okay, so those of us that have been predestined according to his gracious will alone are conformed to the image of Christ. Conversely, those who are perishing, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6, the gospel is what to them? Veiled. Veiled, Paul says. In verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. He goes on to say, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Back to the word foreknew. I didn't forget about it. As we study scripture in regard to God's providence, which we're going to talk about in future weeks, we really only have one of two options to espouse. I'm going to say that again. As we study scripture, we really only have one of two options to espouse. Number one, either the foreordination of a merciful heavenly father has determined future events, that's one, or two, we are left to the workings of blind chance. If you could think of a third option, let me know. I only see two. These are the only two positions in biblical interpretation. Okay? Since the beginning of recorded biblical history all the way through to our current day, there are those who have posited the notion that not only are we to reject the idea of the foreordination of God, but we, are also, or, but, but we also should believe, according to them, that God not only lacks the power to foreordain events, but neither can he foreknow the future acts of free moral agents like you and me. Of course, the second view strips God entirely of his sovereignty and thereby catches God off guard in a continual fashion as men and women 
incessantly make decisions that surprise God because if man is totally free, God's not doesn't know how man's going to act. If he does know how man's going to act, then man's not totally free. Theologians have developed a name for this when I just described it's called open theism. Anybody ever hear open theism? It's also called the openness of God. And my personal favorite, it's called free will theism. According to people who side with these labels, human beings are truly free. And if God absolutely knew the future, then human beings could not be truly free. Very logical. Therefore, they say, God does not know absolutely everything about the future. The future is open. Open theism. The future's open. The future is unknowable to God because we have not made the free will decisions yet that will determine the future. Therefore, they say, God knows everything that can be known, but he does not know what's going to happen. Huge oxymoron there. So the God of open theism is not a sovereign, all-knowing God. Instead, he is a God who is continually caught off guard, as I said, by the decisions of men's free will. And as such, God has absolutely no idea what I'm going to do or what I'm going to say five seconds from now. This is where I get off the ride, folks. I mean, let me off the ride. I want nothing to do with this God. Nothing. If he doesn't know the future, he's not my God. If this God doesn't know what I'm going to do in the next five seconds, then how can he possibly protect me? How can he protect me from others? How can he protect me from the world? How can he protect me from Satan? How can he protect me from myself? Blind chance is all I have. This isn't in the Bible, folks. It's nowhere in the Bible. It isn't even rational thought. Seriously. Open theism, by the way, had its beginnings with a Russian Orthodox priest in the early 20th century, uh, Sergei Bokokov. Bokokov. <clears throat> I had a Russian student uh, at Pitt the last semester, and uh, Steve knows her. And she tried to teach me how to pronounce certain things, but I failed miserably. Anyway, <clears throat> as a general rule of thumb, I have found that, like Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. In other words, because this theory of who God is and how God works is a recent belief, 20th, 20th century, um, that tells me right out of the gate that it's probably not true. It's the height of arrogance, folks, to think that you've come along with some brand new revelation or epiphany concerning the very character and attributes of Almighty God. And furthermore, 
your new view completely dismantles what has been the predominant orthodox view of God's character and his attributes for the last 5,000 years. These open theistic ideas, though, have been around not just since Sergei. These open theistic ideas have been around in one form or another since the beginning of time. When I say that they are quote-unquote new, what I mean is that these ideas have been repackaged, represented as new terms, as a new systemization of thought, okay? Different introduction, different proposition, but it's the same old leftovers from some other heretics of old. And if you study Christian history, you will see that. It's just like Satan, isn't it? He isn't capable of coming up with anything new, and so he just takes old ideas and repackages them and puts them up for sale again. Kind of like, and I I know this is true, because I used to sell USDA chemicals, and I've been in many meatpacking plants and butcher shops. It's kind of like the butcher who takes the ground meat out of the storage case when its date has expired, and they shoot some red dye in that ground meat to make it nice and red and fresh looking, and they put it back out on a display case with an, a new ex- expiration date. Happens all the time. So that's what the devil does with stuff like this. Unfortunately, it's very effective. And there are many people, and as I said, pastors today who are teaching open theism. Why? As I said before, because of pride. My experience with pastors who espouse and teach open theism, and Steve Woodward will tell you that I've got a lot of experience with people like this, okay? These are largely uneducated pastors in the conventional sense, i.e. not too many undergrad college courses on the Bible and not, not too many went to seminary, okay? Um, they have very little understanding of Christian history. Um, they, they think they've discovered something new when they hear an open theist speak or they read a popular book that an open theist has written. Um, I used to teach in the Minister's Institute of the Assemblies of God. Now, what that means is pastors get together twice a year in geographical sections, and there are classes and workshops that other pastors teach for them. And they could take whatever workshops they want to sign up for, classes they can sign up for. Well, every year I I would be called upon by my presbyter to teach apologetics because that was my shtick, okay, apologetics as a campus minister. So the last time I taught at Minister's Institute, because I wasn't asked back after this time, um, it was at the time, I don't know if a lot of you will know these names, but... uh, 
it was at the time that there were popular books out at the top bestseller list of Christian books. Uh, books written by Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, um, Donald Miller, James Dunn, Leonard Sweet, who are the two big guys that started all this uh, in, in the 20th century, not the 20, 20, it was early 2000s, 21st century, okay? And uh, these were the fair-haired boys that led thousands and thousands of people, especially pastors astray. Um, again, there's nothing new under the sun. This is, this, their books were classic deconstructionism, meaning they deconstructed every orthodox tenet of the Christian faith. They deconstructed all of the attributes of God, sovereignty, providence, okay? They deconstructed these things down to an explanation of, you know, well, you know, other cultures have a flood story and other cultures have a creation story. And so the Bible's creation story and flood story can't be true. Basically what they write. And then you had N.T. Wright, who respected theologian, brilliant theologian at one time. Then he goes off the deep end and writes a book on the new, new perspective of Paul. We're going to just change the whole justification thing. And that's what these guys do. They think they've come up with a way that makes more sense than everybody else's way that they've agreed to for the past 2,000 years or 5,000 years. And it got to the point in the Minister's Institute with the pastors that I was teaching when they showed up and whatnot, and these books were on the book table, and they were so hot on these books and these authors and their videos, Rob Bell's NUMA videos. If I had a dollar for everybody that I heard say, did you get the NUMA videos yet? I could retire. Okay, so all this stuff. And they would even mimic the way they dressed. And at the time, if you remember, early 2000s, all the pastors were wearing skinny girls' jeans, carrying a Starbucks mug, and wearing funny little glasses. Am I wrong? Okay. So, again, repackaged, something new. It's really not new. And again, it comes from a place of pride. And when you engage them in conversation, you, they don't want to hear it. So naturally, when I got up to teach and I called these guys on the book table heretics, I wasn't asked back. So anyway, back to our two options. Either God predetermines future events or God is subject to chance, and so are we. By the way, open theism reduces the prophecies of the Old Testament to mere guesses at best. And it destroys the historic Christian view of the inspiration of Scripture, to say the least, which is classic deconstructionism. The Bible is largely full of these stories that other cultures have, therefore it's wrong. And they try to explain the crossing of the Red Sea with weather events and all kinds of stuff. Okay? And of course, the problem, the problem with all this is that we believe Scripture is our authority. They're trying to dismantle Scripture, and those that believe in the orthodox tenets of the Christian faith, 
use Scripture as the authority. And so they're attacking the very authority of everything we believe as Christians. See how the devil works? Intricately deceptive. Attacking the authority of God from, the, from a front and attacking the authority of the word from behind. Okay, back to forenoon. For real this time. Back to forenoon. The word forenoon in Romans 8, 29 carries the Greek connotation. Listen carefully. The Greek connotation that God chose us in a predetermined fashion to single us out for his love and thereby initiate an intimate relationship with us. I'm going to read that again. The word foreknew in Romans 8.29 carries the Greek connotation that God chose us in a predetermined fashion to single us out for his love and thereby initiate an intimate relationship with us. With us, there is a rule, R-U-L-E, of Greek grammar called the Granville Sharp Rule, which we simply do not have time to get into this morning. So you're just going to have to trust me or Google it when you get home. Um, if, if you study this in the Greek, get an interlinear Bible, get a... Englishman's Concordance and study this, and you'll see that it really should read this way. And I've said this for years. I don't understand why it's translated in English the way it is. I think it has a lot to do with people not wanting to step on toes and make waves with publishers. But this is how it should read. Quote, those whom he had chosen beforehand, he had already decided should become like his son. Those that he had chosen beforehand... He had already decided should become like his son. I'd also like to point out that the term foreknew here carries the same meaning in other New Testament places, using the same Greek word, carries the same meaning as foreordain. And here, it carries the same meaning as foreordain because of our context, the context. Now, please allow me to explain. I see a lot of you are taking notes. In verse 28, Paul has just explained that all things work together for good to those who love God and who have been called according to his purpose. And so God has already done his appointing and preparing before the world began, as we said, as Paul says, to ensure what? The accomplishment of of our salvation. He predetermined it before the world began as the first step in initiating it and bringing it to fruition. This is why we can believe. This is the answer to who, what, when, where, why. This is why we can believe that everything works together for our good. We must always remember that the Bible teaches in numerous places that God's election precedes faith. Arminians believe that faith precedes salvation. It doesn't. Election precedes faith. I could give you a million proof texts, but I'll just give you one. Acts 13, 48. And as many as had been appointed 
to salvation believed or appointed to eternal salvation believed. So what Paul means here in Romans 8.29 is that God chose you by knowing you, by setting his heart upon you intimately. He made the first move toward you. He sought you out. You know the scriptures as well as I do. We quote them in here all the time. Romans 3, 10 through 12, no one seeks after God. No, not one. You see this all through the scriptures. People in the Bible run away from God. Let me rephrase that. People in the Bible that God calls run away from God. And he typically has to drag them where he wants to take them. Paul, Jonah. Okay, so God started loving you before he was even on your, I'm sorry, before you were even on his radar. No, you, he was even on your radar, sorry. <laughs> um, when you were going about your sinful lifestyle with no regard for him at all, he was unfolding loving plans for you that he had prepared before you were even born. And we see this, the most popular scripture that's always quoted. And I'm sorry, folks, but I did something I very, very seldom do. I pulled a Rick Warren here. I picked the Bible translation based on what I wanted it to say. Okay. So this is the Living Bible. Probably get in trouble with the other pastors for this. 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days of my life were recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. It's pretty close. Amos chapter 3, verse 2. God says to his people, You only have I known out of all the nations. That's how he knows you, church. It's an intimate, relational way. It's like a very good marriage. The Greek word for fernu, I'm going to go quickly for the sake of time. For the, the, the Greek word for new in our text, as I said before, it's used elsewhere in the New Testament, and it's used four times this way, the way it's used in Romans 8.29. And this word, okay, foreknown, um, means to know before, but not in an intellectual knowledge or cognitive sense of a kind of way. It means to choose or determine beforehand in an intimate, intimate knowing way, like Adam knew Eve. That's why I said it was like a marriage, okay? It's the same word used, and you can look this up, same word used in Romans 11.2, where Paul speaks of God foreknowing his chosen Israel. And we all know God didn't look down the corridors of time with the nation of Israel and see that they were going to believe and he elected them. Okay, it's used in 1 Peter 1.20, where Peter says that God the Father had 
foreknown Christ as our sacrifice from before the foundation of the world. And it's the same word that is used in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, where Peter speaks of Christians being chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And it's also used in Acts 2.23, where Jesus is said to have been delivered to men to be crucified according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Paul says in Romans 8.29 that God knew everything about us before we knew anything about him. Now, church, I'm getting to the end. There are no corridors of time. I don't believe they exist. God exists outside of time. God created time. God is not bound by time. God moves in and out of time. He knows the end from the beginning because he predetermined what the end would be from before the beginning. We just read it last week, or two weeks ago. I'll read it again. Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors, you sinners. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird prey of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will do it. And, folks, the context there in Isaiah is salvation for Israel. Okay? He does not have to wait. God does not have to wait like the God of the open theists until you are born, until you grow up, and until you start deciding to make decisions about your own morality. He doesn't wait for that. He predetermines it. He sets it into motion. He brings it to fruition. And he accomplishes his good purposes in it. So God is not bound by any of those things. The scriptures I just quoted are clear. He chooses to know you intimately because he foreordained you before you were created. Now, this is why In verse 33, if you look there, Romans 8, 33, and I should have had Scott read this, but I didn't. Um, <clears throat> this is why in verse 33 of our text, Paul says, who will bring an accusation against God's elect? Now, this is a stupid analogy, but it's the best one that I could think of. It's like being a made man in the mob, okay? It's like, um, you know, once you are in, you are in. Once Almighty God elects you to salvation, who can possibly bring an accusation against it or against you? In other words, who's going to accuse you when God elects you? Who is going to say, you shouldn't be here? You shouldn't be saved? 
Nobody. You're a made man, so to speak. The devil, that accuser of the brethren, according to Revelation 12.10, can accuse you, and he does, slander you, and he does, make accusations against you until he's blue in the face. But the fact of the matter is, you are one of the elect, and therefore, according to the Apostle Paul, you are justified because God has justified you. Verse 33. No one can condemn you. Verse 34. Look at verse 34. Christ intercedes for you. Paul says that he died for you, was raised from the dead, and now sits at the right hand of God and intercedes for you. So who's going to bring a charge against you? And who can separate you from the love of Christ? Verse 35. Will tri tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? Will any of those things separate you from the love of Christ? I think not. You are assured glory. You are assured your inheritance. It is Christ's ascension and intercession that assures us that God's justifying verdict on our behalf will not wane, falter, or fail. The justifying verdict is final. There's no court of appeals. Justification, folks, is, a legal, is the legal opposite of condemnation. And it's Basis is the atoning death, resurrection, and intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ. So who's going to condemn you when the Lord Jesus Christ is praying for you and interceding for you? And lastly, he is our high priest who is holy and innocent and undefiled, separate from sinners. Not He is, he is exalted above the heavens... He does not need to go daily like those high priests of the Old Testament and offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. For this he did what? Once for all. For you, for me, once for all. Offered himself up, Hebrews 7, 26 and 27. So folks, thus far, this is where we are in regard to our text, all things work together for the good of those who love God and have been called according to his purpose. Why do we believe this? Because God has already done the appointing and the preparing before the world began to ensure the accomplishment of your salvation. That's why we can believe that everything works together for our good. God is in charge. We are not. Let's pray.